Welcome to Half-Stack Data Science, the show about data science in the real world. Today we're continuing our series, talking to data science educators, with a conversation with Reuven Lerner. Reuven is a full-time Python trainer with a bachelor's degree in computer science and engineering from MIT and a PhD in learning sciences from Northwestern University. In a given year, he teaches courses at companies in the United States, Europe, Israel, India, and China, as well as to people around the world via his online courses. In 2020, Reuven published Python Workout, a collection of Python exercises with extensive explanations published by Manning. He's currently working on Pandas Workout, a similar collection of exercises using the Pandas library for data analytics. Reuven's free weekly Better Developers newsletter about Python and software engineering is read by more than 30,000 developers around the globe. Reuven's most recent venture is Bamboo Weekly. Every Wednesday, he presents a problem based on current events using a public data set, and every Thursday, he shares detailed solutions to those problems using Pandas. We spoke to Reuven about his love of teaching Python to beginners, what he thinks of notebooks and ChatGPT as educational tools, and how he got banned for life from advertising on Facebook. So if you want to hear that story, please stick around and enjoy our conversation with Reuven Lerner. Hey, we're here with Reuven Lerner. Reuven, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. So we'll start with the question that we start with everyone, which is what is your job title and what do you really do all day? <laughs> so I don't even know what my job title is. I, I typically say that I'm a trainer in Python and data science. Um, but I've sort of struggled to describe exactly what I do um, because it's all around that. So, so I'll, I'll just say I've, I've had my own consulting business since 1995. So I've been doing this for a while and I started off doing some programming, some technical consulting, and people asked me to help them with and do training, sort of teach them what I do. And so way back when, that was a lot of sort of Linux stuff and web applications and so forth. And at a certain point I said, actually, the thing that I really enjoy doing is the training. And what do you know, I can actually do that full time. And in order to succeed at that, I need to sort of narrow that down, narrow down my scope. So about 10, 15 years ago, I guess it was, I said, well, I'm just gonna do training. I'm just gonna do training in Python and related things. But describing that in a way that, shall we say, normal humans can understand, like I do corporate training in Python and related things. And oh, by the way, I also have a bunch of video courses that I do and a bunch of newsletters that I do. And have I mentioned the books? And like, there's no way to sort of encapsulate it in a way that's really good. So I'm just constantly playing with it. Polyglot is the word for that. Yeah. Yeah. But that's sort of bad for business, right? Like. <laughs> there's no there's no big polyglot to sell to so so i think lately the phrase that i've sort of um like stumbled upon is i'm helping people to become more confident with python and pandas and that'll stick probably for six months yeah helping people confidence what does confidence mean so because there are an awful lot of people using python and pandas nowadays who have a sort of kind of basic idea of how they work and they're able to get their jobs done. They use them full time or close to full time, thanks to the magic of Stack Overflow and now ChatGPT. Um, and so they get an answer on Stack Overflow. It doesn't work. They spend two days rejiggering it. And then they're like, oh, it works. Python is amazing. But they couldn't tell you what they were doing or how it worked. And they don't see the connections among these things. And I tell them that um, I see Stack Overflow less so ChatGPT, but so also somewhat as sort of like going to a foreign country and having a phrase book that you can get by, 
but it's not the fluency that you need in order to have a really deep understanding and deep conversation. Um, and so by making people more confident, I want them to understand the underlying connections. I want to, them to understand the thinking, the design of the system, so that when they encounter a problem they don't know how to solve, they can reason through it themselves or go to the documentation, blogs, and so forth. And then the vocabulary will resonate with what they already know and will build on it. And then they won't need to go back for such questions in the future. Um, and I find that I mean, I, I think people who've gone through my courses do have that confidence, or at least more than when they came in. That that's really interesting. You've sort of set me up to to a question I wanted to ask at some point, but it's a good time to to talk about it and because I, I've looked at a lot of the stuff that you've done, and I I feel like there's this the common theme to to like a sort of teaching philosophy that you have. Is there a specific? I don't know if it's teaching philosophy, but is is there a sort of specific angle that you bring to your teaching that you think is sort of unique? Well, what's your thinking going into designing a course that is like uniquely you? So I want to sort of give people a good mental model of what's what's happening. And I, I'm not a big fan of saying you have to understand everything, down, dig down in all the abstractions, right? I don't think that's true because I don't understand everything that happens on my computer, for example. But um, having a sense of, why do things work the way they do? And what are the underlying connections? Really, really does help. Um, and it's not an accident that I talk about phrase books and languages. So I'm really interested in language. For the last, I want to say six, seven years, I've been studying Chinese. Um, and just about every day, it's like having my, like, my teeth kicked in. Because uh, <laughs> like every day, my teacher will say, say X, Y, Z. And I'll like, you know, use it in a sentence. And she'll be like, no, that's not really right. And I realized that, um, and, and then I'll ask her questions about, well, how does this relate to this and this relate to this? And it's not always obvious to her that that's the sort of question someone should be asking. But for me, understanding the connections among the characters, the grammar, how does this relate to that, helps me to put it in perspective. And I, I want my students to come out understanding, okay, Python has these three different ways of doing something. Here is why they all exist, and here is why I should prefer this one. So I've tried to come up with rules and acronyms and descriptions to to let them sort of in on the secret, to let them see, sort of peel back the curtain and see the underlying ideas. And again, I think that's generally worked. That along with lots of exercises. Um, I call that, uh, my phrase for that is controlled frustration. That you can go to work and try to do these things and you will be frustrated and you will learn it. But you also have then your boss breathing down your neck like, why is this not working yet? And so by sort of having it inside time boxed inside of a course where I'm there to sort of shepherd them along and help them and give them pointers, having lots of those exercises and trying to reveal those underlying connections, the combination of that I think is, 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 is what I'm always thinking about. And I'll just add that when I'm putting together a course or a lecture or anything, one of the steps that I do is, and here I'm gonna use Stack Overflow as a positive uh, uh, example, not a, a, like a punching bag, but basically, I always go to Stack Overflow and I search for the topic that I'm teaching and I try to find all the common questions that people have. And I try to see, mm. okay, have I answered the questions that people typically have on this subject? A, because they're going to be like, how did you know? It's always like a great feeling. And secondly, because that will give me insights into where are people's gaps in understanding that I can try to bridge preemptively. I think we've all seen looking for something on Stack Overflow that sometimes the way that people ask the question about the thing they want to try to achieve reveals some misperception, some misconception about how things work. So what are some specific kind of greatest hits, timeless classics of things that people 
bursting through the sort of phrase book version of the language to get to the last page sort of miss along the way? Ooh, great question. So first of all, I'll, I'll also add that I don't use slides when I teach. It's all live coding. It's all using Jupyter. And, and I do that because I want to encourage them, and I do encourage them to interrupt me to say, wait, that doesn't make sense. Or what about this? What about that? And so, so that sense that we're all experimenting, we're all learning, I think is a healthy thing for them to see. And I tell them, I've been using Python for 30 years, and I'm still learning new stuff every day through this experimentation. So things like variable scoping, um, which seems mind-numbingly boring, right? Like, But it turns out to be you know, colossally important. People don't understand that it works. People don't understand that when they assign to a variable called sum, because they've summed up some digits, um, like they don't realize, oh wait, I've just made unavailable the built-in sum function. And so down the road, <laughs> like it bites them. They're like, I don't understand. Why is it telling me that I can't execute this integer? Um, and so I have to sort of like, and so I say, okay, here's what you did. We're gonna get to this soon in the course. Um, so that's a, a classic sort of one. Um, the uh, misunderstanding of how Python objects work. People who come from, especially Java and C++, have a very strong idea of how objects work and how we should think about them, how we should use them. And especially people who've been through university courses in object-oriented programming who have been taught that inheritance is the relationship that you should always look for and use. So I have an exercise where I say, okay, I want you to create a class of ice cream scoops and now create, or ice cream scoop, and now create several instances. And now create a class of an ice cream bowl and create an instance. And like, now I want you to put the scoops in the bowl. And inevitably someone will say, so does scoop inherit from bowl or does bowl inherit from scoop? And I'm like, no, that's not the way it works. But they're so convinced that they must look for inheritance whenever they see two classes that that'll happen. And, and then like, if you move over to like the panda stuff, people have a huge, huge, huge number of misconceptions about how things work there. They don't understand the vectorization. I just gave a class a few months ago, um, like a, what I call a micro course, 90 minutes on optimizing pandas. And in the last like five minutes of the course, I said, oh, and by the way, I just have to mention this because like, I won't be doing my duty unless I do. Never use a for loop in pandas. And suddenly everyone's like, what? I said, what do you mean what? Like, I, I didn't even mention this because I was so, 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 so obvious. And they said, we were told in a previous pandas class that this is the only way to go through these, the best way. I was like, oh my God, let me show you right now. Because I use Jupyter, I said, let's use time it. Let's compare. Don't you see how awful this is? And they were sort of shell-shocked. And then the class ended. So it was like, finale. <laughs> Cliffhanger. <laughs> right, right. Will they survive the pandas monster? No. Yeah, th that's that's really interesting. So, so do I take it that do you teach people as from like from programming backgrounds, sort of pivoting into Python data science as well? Yes. So, so my sort of bread and butter courses are Intro Python, which I really need to rename to Intro Python for Programmers. Um, and I'll get back to that in a moment. Advanced Python, which is basically an Intro Python, is for anyone who has a programming background and or has been using Python for up to a year. Um, and my advanced Python course is then for people who have been a year and more of day-to-day -day Python. Um, and even then, it's usually a little too much for people. Like their brains are sort of coming out of their ears by the end of the day. And then I have like an intro uh, data analytics course and then an intro data science course uh, with scikit-learn, um, which truth be told, people don't want anymore. We can talk, we can, we can talk about that a little later. Uh, but what happened to be on several occasions teaching my intro Python course was people came to me at the end of the first day and said, this is great, but I don't have a programming background and this is way too fast for me. 
And I was like, oh, today's the slow day. <laughs> We're going to ramp it up from here. Um, and so that's when I created my Python for non-programmers class, which I do in corporate training. And I have to say, in many ways, it's my favorite class because I have classrooms of people who are convinced they cannot code, who have taken courses in high school, university, are sure that like they can't do it. And yet their bosses are telling them, you have to learn to do this. I've got network engineers who've been told you need to do APIs. I've got managers who are trying to figure out like, what are my programmers doing who work for me? Cause I came up through the marketing department or something. And so this- What are they doing all day? <laughs> right, what are they, exactly. And so, so like the non-programmers class means from day one through day four, we go from what is a variable was a value to let's retrieve stuff from an API and turn to a dictionary. And even if it's fast, and even if they don't get everything, they at least get the sense of, yeah, I can do this. Like, it's not impossible. It takes work, but it's possible. But I try to like handle people at all ends of the spectrum, even though I definitely have a, a soft spot for newbies because I feel like people ignore them too much or talk over their heads or are like, oh, come on, you're asking that sort of question? How dumb of a question is that? Like, you might not know this, but computer people can be a little patronizing and like have a sense of Yeah, then they wonder now. why their technology doesn't get adopted. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> and I think within, within technology people, within the class of technology people, there's a special group called data people who may have come from technology people but like your ice cream example may have come from another genus and they are um yeah so i'd say part of your philosophy is down-to-earth empowerment of people where they are right if you're saying that you don't yes. use slides you work through things in front of people making mistakes going faster slower that's really powerful when ever you're learning something and someone who's teaching it like actually understands where you're at. Um, that was my personal frustration. I have no programming background. I taught myself almost everything in order to solve some kind of data problem. And I did multiple waves of programming classes and stuff, but they just started at like, we're going to rotate arrays. And I'm like, it's an array. Like, I just use the computer to play games. And that was the entry point. Oh my God. So yeah. I, I do a four-month online boot camp in Python, Git, and Pandas. I'm now in the third cohort. And virtually everyone in the boot camp has already taken Python courses before. And yet they're frustrated, or even Pandas courses before. And they're like, I don't understand. Why can't anyone just explain this in clear language? And so I do twice-weekly office hours with them. And for me, it's super fun. Right? Like I just get to know these people well, it's small core cohorts, they ask me questions, we go through it live. But for them, it's like, finally someone says, you're not an idiot for not understanding this. It's okay to not understand this. And let's try to peel it back and understand where your confusion is at so we can you know, rejigger your understanding. And, and I'll, I'll add also, like I, I mentioned before, I do tons of exercises in my courses. And for me, the most important thing is not even the exercise. It's the going through the solution step by step mm. after they do the exercise that I show mm. them often with bugs, often with mistakes, you know, on purpose. Or be like, oh, now we worked ourselves into a quarter. How do we get out of this? Because I, I think as important, way more important than the syntax is the process. How do I go about solving these problems? Uh, just earlier today, I, mean, I was teaching uh, Intro Python today, and uh, I use the analogy I often do because like, some people were confused by like, where do I even start? Like, where do I even start with this sort of, you know, solving a problem? I said, right, like someone comes to my house um, to fix something because I'm awful at it. And I have a toolbox with all 
the same tools, not as shiny, but the same tools, but they know which tools to take out first to solve the problem. And I would not have a clue. And so part of showing them the process is let's think about what order we want to do things, what tools do we want to choose from the ones at our disposal? And then let's, let's see how we work through it little by little. Yeah, I, I really like that. And I like the fact that you, you called it controlled frustration. So you're giving them a, a chance to to try this thing in the real world. So it's not not so much a classroom setting. It's actually a more real world setting, right, to solve problems. Um, and I, I noticed this trend in your work. I mean, you know, your your Manning books and your, your Bamboo Weekly newsletter, which is all just... Uh, well, actually, I, I wanted to ask you about that to say, what was, was this similar inspiration behind starting Bamboo Weekly? Um, because I think that's a great educational tool. I, I was hoping you could talk about it a bit about what thinking behind it. Yeah. So, so Bamboo Weekly took a while to sort of germinate. And I was like, okay, I really love doing exercises. But the thing I keep hearing from people is the exercises are too made up, too not connected to the real world, too, the data is too clean. And like, and I said, okay, so why don't I make non-boring exercises using real world data and like <laughs> sort of challenge myself every week too. And I'm a, I'm a news junkie. So I'm constantly like every week I'm reading some ridiculous number of magazines and articles and blogs and newspapers and whatnot. Um, so I was like, okay, I probably like the right person to try to do this. What if every week I come up with some topic in the news and news can be like very fuzzy um, and I'm going to find some data set having to do with it. And let's see what we can do with it. And if I take a new topic and new challenges in pandas and new challenges in data analytics, this could be fun and interesting for a lot of people to practice their craft on real world data. Um, and I'm having a blast, an absolute blast putting it together. It's great fun. And I've learned a ton in doing it as well. And I think that's been instructive too, that between Wednesday, when I pose the questions and the, the way that I do it is I'm, I've got like this long list of ideas of like different topics and so forth. And then I sort of Sunday, Monday, start to like try to find something to do. Wednesday, I send the questions. Before I send the questions out, I have a full Jupyter notebook full of my solution. So that's already set. Thursday, then I go through that Jupyter notebook and I say, oh, this wasn't good and that wasn't good and this I can do better. And then when I put together my detailed solution, I'm often fixing up what I've got and then they get sort of the finalized version plus access to that notebook. And as I said, I've learned a lot. Hopefully they've learned a lot. Um, it hasn't quite gotten off the ground in terms of numbers as much as I had hoped, but I think that's just a matter of time and better marketing because I, I feel like I've got something that no one else is offering. Mm. No, no, absolutely. And, and I was going to say like within, within our little echo chamber here, we're obviously all completely in love with this idea. I mean, Sean and I've always talked about this, that, that classrooms have just this disconnect from the real world. And it's, it's been my frustration teaching um, as well. And, and so on what I noticed in, in my cohorts is that a lot of students at the end say, cause I, I teach very similar to you sort of do, do hands-on exercises, go through the solutions, make sure there's time to discuss it. And at the end of the course, you know, loads of people always say like, oh, this was such a great approach. Like this is the best kind of training I've ever done. And it just makes me think, is this approach like radical? Because in my mind, whenever I think of these exercises and creating them, I think, well, this is so obvious. Like obviously you should learn by doing hands-on projects and learning all the it, all the connections and things implicitly by doing rather than being told in a classroom. But I mean, do you think we're in a minority uh, as educators who think that way? 
I think we might be in a minority of educators who are doing it because at the end of the day, like someone said to me a few days ago, this must take a long time for you to do. I was like, yeah, I, I'm guessing it takes like six hours or so every week. And um, like, it's a lot of time researching and putting together and writing and so forth. It's a lot. Well, you of have time. to write a solution every week. You have to create a fresh thing every week. Yeah, I mean, it's like 3000 words, it turns out. Like yeah. I'm writing a lot. <laughs> yeah, people um, dine off the same example for two years in a classroom, right? Right, right. So, so basically, I, th I think that it's sort of like, why is so much education done the way it is? Because of like financial constraints, like it's all the economics that you have to have a, a bunch of people in a room with an instructor, they have to pay a certain amount, finish at a certain time. And so here I'm saying it can be more open ended. And so I think there are many people who think this way. Um, how many people actually do it? It's a smaller number. And I have yet to demonstrate that there's an actual paying market for this. I believe I told myself when I started this that I would give it a year to a year and a half to justify itself. Um, and I feel like it, like if it can get to the point where let's call it pays the same as half a day of instruction, I'll be happy, right? I think you can get to much more than that because I'm also now building up, don't forget, a huge library of exercises that I can use in my corporate training. I can publish as a book. I can do all sorts of other stuff with. Um, so I'm starting to play with new ways of marketing it, um, to try to get the word out more and more. Uh, ironically, by the way, I thought about advertising on Facebook and it turns out that I have been banned for life from advertising on Facebook. Um, and in looking into it, I know I, I was like, what, what the heck did I do? So this is, this is one of the best stories ever. And I'm about to write a blog post about it because no one at Meta has really ever solved it. So a friend of mine who's also a Python instructor said, oh, I had this problem also. You violated their rule against selling live animals, pythons and pandas. Two live animals <laughs> that put in the same cage will fight each other. You think this is like meta and their model is just control F animal name in, in the thing and then immediately banned. So, so it's, it's all done via AI um, and basically- oh, yeah, Very intelligent. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, and and basically, um, I contacted someone I know, like someone I know. I posted this on Facebook, and a friend of mine from from MIT who works there said, "I'll I'll figure out what's going on." And he said, "Well, the problem is that you were banned a year ago, and it seems that after 180 days, there's no way to undo it because the data was deleted because they have a data retention policy." So I'm now in this. So so basically, a second friend of mine who used to work in Meta has said he'll try to take care of it. I'm waiting to hear back from him, but in the next day or two, I don't. I'm 100% posting a blog post banned from advertising on Facebook because I teach Python, putting on a Hacker News and literally. Definitely. <laughs> oh, I hope I hope your website can withhold that or withstand that kind of traffic because that's going to be fun. I just, I'm sorry we're laughing at your pain, but I think this is No, just it's hysterically funny. It's, it's, I, I told them, I told, I tell everyone, I'm like, do you understand what a great example this is for my intro data, data science courses? Like, yeah. like I'm, I'm going to milk this for years in every way I can, but <laughs> But I'm definitely looking at advertising um, Bamboo Weekly more to get the word out because I think that once I find the right people and the right audience, um, it's going to take off like wildfire. Mm. It's also, no, I think it's so. cheap. I mean, for crying out loud, it's a hundred bucks a year. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's, I think it's fascinating. People still have this mindset that they have to go through this rigid classroom experience to get value. Um, whereas clearly, you know, we, we know that the best way to to be in the real world is just to do real world stuff. Like the, that's the best way to prepare for it. And, and I'll, I'll add, by the way, that I have discovered all sorts of real world 
weirdness problems with data. Um, like in addition to learn a lot about pandas, a lot about data analytics, I've just been learning all sorts of bizarre things. Like, so, so the topic for this week, I'm probably going to do like the Harvard study that I just learned about of young voters. They have an Excel spreadsheet with all their data with like 20 or 30 sub tables. Why not use different sheets? Right, right. What, was that unavailable to you? So are you unfamiliar with Excel and how it works? So, but you know what? This is the real world. This is how it works. So yeah. what's the best way to it's post It's a great this? example. I think that's a great example. See, because that's how people use Excel. So that's how you as a data person should know how to read stuff in from Excel. That's like right. people are not going to give you a, a clean CSV, as you said, like in the real world, no one hand, hand crafts you something that is ready to, to load. And so thinking about the, your audience and your ideal sort of target audience, you, you mentioned a very quick aside about scikit-learn and, and, and data science-y stuff that is maybe not as popular, or you hinted that it's it's less interesting for people. What, what was that aside that you wanted to get into? I, I'm really interested in that. So, so when I started, so the way that my courses typically work sort of evolutionarily is I'll do like a short course of a day or two, and then I'll add more material because of a three-day course. Then I add more material because of a four-day course. And then I like stuff as much as I can to the four-day course until it's bursting at the seams. And then I'm like, okay, now it's time to split it. So I originally had an intro to data science, uh, intro to data science, which was two days of NumPy and Pandas and two days of Scikit-Learn. And um, I was teaching that like not a small amount for a few years. And then I discovered that A, uh, the students were more interested in the analytics than they were in the machine. Like the students were interested in the machine learning, but needed the analytics. Um, and number two, um, when people were like people were interested in analytics courses. So I said, okay, I'm going to split this into two. I'm going to have a four-day intro to NumPy and Pandas, like half a day, two-thirds of a day of NumPy, the rest is Pandas, and then a four-day intro to machine learning with Scikit-Learn. I don't think anyone has hired me yet to do the intro to Scikit-Learn. Uh, like, like no one, but like, but the Pandas course has been of high, high, high interest. People really want that. I'm like, okay. Who am I to argue with the market? And like, that market, is that individuals or companies or like when you say they are not interested in the, the scikit-learn side? I would say individuals seem to be interested. I keep getting queries from people. Mm -hmm. Hey, you know, why don't you have a recorded version of your scikit-learn course? That's the one thing, one major topic that I've not turned into a, a recorded video course for individuals. Um, but companies have not been interested in it. Uh, and, and the Panda stuff, Tons of places have been interested, tons and tons. I mean, uh, the Bank of Israel, which is like our national bank, they had me come in and do something because their analysts are moving from Excel to Pandas, or they know that this is the future. And a whole bunch of other places have had me do that too. Um, and I think that trend is just accelerating. The Pandas is just sort of taking over everywhere. Despite its shortcomings, it's just like crazy, crazy popular. I'll go further. Uh, once when I was teaching in uh, Shanghai, I remember like, cause I, so some places I can get away with this more than others. I said to people who here is taking this intro to machine learning, like it was the four day, like together course, who here is actually going to use machine learning in their job? No hands. Who here is learning machine learning because they think it's really cool. All the hands go up. Right. So, so, so there are people who sort of wanted it, but their companies at some point, I think realized, I don't think the ROI on this is going to be that high. I mean, that, that's fascinating, really, because I, I would have thought it's a realization that they get after they take all those 
machine learning courses, go back to their companies, go look at all this cool stuff I learned, and then they find no places to use them at their jobs. <laughs> so the fact that right. they've preemptively gone in and said, you know, this is not something I can use, but it's something I'm interested in. I think that's that's a step in the right direction because I, I think you know, I've had this experience all the time is people think that the course is going to be all about machine learning and the ins and outs of how to how to predict stuff. And you're like, well, there's all this other stuff you need. The company needs the infrastructure. They need the strategy that you need to find the CSV somewhere lying about. There's all this other stuff you need to do before you can even think about machine learning. And that sort of sort of wilts them a bit because they thought they were coming in to do really cool cutting edge stuff. Um, and the fact that they're not, in your case, they, they know there's a disconnect. I think that's a really good indication, hopefully. And is there any topic that you've changed your mind on over the years about maybe its importance in teaching? Because I mean, you seem to have a very sort of pragmatic, real world focused philosophy. So I, I, I can't imagine you have swung very wildly across topics, but is there anything that maybe you taught a lot and you think now it's not worth doing or, or vice versa? Hmm. So I guess the, the biggest surprise to me has been design patterns where a whole bunch of companies asked me to teach object-oriented design patterns. And I was like, oh, please, who really uses these? Like everyone uses them in job interviews, <laughs> right? And everyone sort of talks about it sort of at a general level, but do companies really use design patterns? And I'm still not convinced that they do that much, but companies keep asking me to teach design patterns. I'm like, okay, um, either they're using it or they think they need it, but I'll, I'll go where the market is if they really need. So that's a, an example of something I'm sort of less excited about teaching, but I'll teach it. What kind of students would they send on a course that requires, like if they think we need design patterns for these individuals, what, what are those individuals? What are their Ooh, roles? That's a great question. So, so basically different companies work in different ways. Um, some companies say um, we are sending this team to that course, like at the Bank of Israel, they said, we are sending 20 people from our analytics group to learn how to do Python and Pandas, because this is the future for them. You are being sent. But a lot of big companies, um, they have a course and, and, and they advertise it internally. And if enough people sign up for it, then it happens. And if not enough people sign up for it, it doesn't. Um, and if it's a big enough company, the odds are good usually that it'll happen. So the design patterns course is typically in the latter, where they put it on their internal course bulletin board. They say, hey, who wants to learn design patterns? And everyone's like, of course I want to learn design patterns. Um, and so they come, it's a one day short course. Um, and so I don't think anyone is telling them they should do it. I think they are personally motivated to do it for whatever reasons, um, whether I would mm. agree with them or not. Uh, that's, that's really interesting because I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not necessarily an opposite view to that, but I, I actually think there is a, a layer of data scientists who learn to code on the job, but have no software background. And so they're very inefficient at writing code. They're, they don't think myself included. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and which kind of makes sense, right? Because code for analysis is often like a th almost a throwaway thing. It's like, we're trying to solve a specific problem. We're not envisaging making this a uh, production grade software. We just want to get an answer to a question. And so it's not top of their minds to think about design patterns. But I think there is probably a huge gap for data scientists to overcome to become better software engineers and write code that is is more not even more performant but like more maintainable and, and scalable and, and sort of more in line with best practice so it's interesting that there are people who self-select for that but i think it's also interesting the companies like put that on their bulletin board without really having a use case for it 
can I ask a contentious question of two Python gurus? Obviously. Oh, sure. <laughs> two Python gurus who teach in notebooks. And two Python gurus who teach in notebooks who actually know what computers, like how computers work. Can you teach those principles of maintainability, scalability, reusability, whatever, using notebooks? Or do you have to use Python in a different way? Uh, is the whole notebooks versus other things just a massive noise distraction thing? To boil it down to a single sentence, can you productionize or should you productionize a notebook as an artifact? So I'm going to answer the last question first. Um which is, I was at a great talk at PyData Tel Aviv, I guess it was like eight months ago already, where someone asked that question and described what his company, I forget which company it was. And he basically said, put most of your code in modules that you write normally, and then use the notebook as like a front end to those modules. And I was like, that is such a brilliant insight. It's so obvious in retrospect, and it was not obvious before he said that. Um, it's also, very easy for me as an experienced software person to be able to say, okay, well, the notebook is just another way of writing my code. But obviously, when I get into production mode, I'm going to put it in an actual IDE and so forth. And it took me a long time to realize that what I take for granted is that perspective is not at all what people take for granted um, if they don't, like, if no one says it to them. So I even on a few occasions in my intro courses forgotten to include an IDE at any point. And I realized afterwards, oh, that was not good. So I now make a point of having them do at least a few exercises in PyCharm or VS Code just so they can sort of see what that process is. And I say to them, you're going to have to figure out what the balance is of what you do in each of these tools. But the tools, like there's some overlap, but every workplace is different. Um, and yeah. don't get sucked into thinking that it has to be one or the other. Aaron, curious to hear what David says about this stuff too. Yeah, I, I mean, if, if, you, if you search for the right things online, there will be people who argue really strongly in both camps. I mean, there was Joel Gruse who wrote, yeah. um, who wrote that, that whole thing. He had a whole talk about, I don't like notebooks, or maybe it was more severe than that. Like he, he's very in the anti-notebook camp. But then there's people like FastAI who are strongly in the no notebook camp and they've released this whole infrastructure of how to take a notebook and just take it all the way into like production. And they've got an entire course where the whole thing runs on notebooks. And it's like, so, so that, you know, you can get everything on, on the extremes. Um, I mean, my answer is probably probably boring, and it's just whatever is works for the particular situation. Um, but I, th I think what Ruben said is important: is to to at least show students what software engineering looks like outside of notebooks. Because you, yeah, because I mean, software engineers would scoff at notebooks because it's it's not the same kind of infrastructure they're used to. Um, but that but doesn't I, matter, right? If if we're using code to analyze data and answer questions, and then I think notebooks are unparalleled. I don't, I don't think you can. And do they're that. more universal, right? They're, and like, they're shareable, and they're yeah. readable, and they're there's just so much better. And for education, I mean, there's just such a such a, an advantage being able to do that. Right. I'm sort of waiting. I've I've been talking to the folks at uh, Notable. Uh, I met them at PyCon US. And I, I'd heard of them, but had no idea what they did. And I was just blown away with what they showed me. And I'm waiting for like the right small group that I can treat as a bunch of guinea pigs, where I mm. will, uh, you know, not telling them, of course, where I'll just use Notable because it has that sharing feature built in and so forth. Um, but yeah, I, I even tell people like, if you think the notebooks are this like this weird esoteric thing, um, there are now at least this was like a year or two ago, ten million publicly viewable Jupyter Notebooks on GitHub alone. 
That's just an astonishing, astonishing number. It is not an esoteric tool, but it definitely could yeah. use some help. Mm. And and I think it's you just don't, don't want to fall into the the trap of having a hammer and thinking everything's a nail. Like not everything can yes. be solved with a notebook. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and and then just just circling around for the final question, just one thing that you sort of again briefly mentioned, but we wanted to get back to is is the future with ChatGPT and its friends. So I know because I, I follow Bamboo Weekly and I know you've done this already as an experiment of like tried to use ChatGP to solve one of the problems or at least use it as an aid. So where do you see your future, particularly with ChatGPT and how your role is going to change? I don't know, but it's going to change. So first of all, um, Eric Mathis led a great group at PyCon US at the Education Summit about AI and ChatGPT. He's just like a really thoughtful, thoughtful smart and super nice guy. And it was a great discussion. And we all were like, well, we don't know, but here's some of the stuff we think. My bottom line with all these tools is I see it as a discussion partner, brainstorming partner, um, but not an authority. So it's sort of like the next level up or two levels up from rubber duck programming um, or from pair programming. So I'm getting feedback, but I better be smart enough to look at what was produced, decide if it's smart or right or not. Because sometimes it'll be spot on and sometimes it'll be you know, spot off. Um, and you need to be smart enough to, to distinguish. But it could, look, I'll give another like short storyish thing. I think it was about a year, year and a half ago, I was at a company and someone was using a co-pilot and they typed in deaf pig Latin word or PL word, like which I use, and it literally filled out the rest of the problem because AI recognized the name of the function from my pig Latin uh, uh, exercise and just auto-completed the whole darn thing. And they had solved it in 10 seconds. I'm expecting to see more and more of that with ChatGPT and similar uh, things. And so then it's going to be a matter of, okay, you got it to work. Why does it work? What is that understanding? And I think that's going to be more of our role also, the whole world of computers is a constant ascension in uh, um, levels of abstraction, right? We're just going up and up and up. And this is going to mean raising everything and even higher level of abstraction. How do we integrate that into teaching? How do we talk about in terms of classrooms? What do people need to know and not need to know? I don't think anyone has any idea. Um, but I'm going to... Uh, one last thing, really, truly one last thing. Um, when I did a course a few months ago, I started to experiment with something, which was, okay, we're done with this exercise. I've now explained it to you. Let's enter my problem text into ChatGPT and see what it comes up with. And let's evaluate that as a group. Oh, and I that, love that actually worked really well. I love that idea. That's really good. Because once they've actually seen how to do it, then they've got the context for the chat GPT answer. And you know they've got the context because you've just given it to them. Right. And I think, I mean, I don't know the future either, but I, between you and me, I think this whole project-based approach of like actually trying to solve problems as your main educational focus, I don't think that's going anywhere because the, that's the job. And so right. whether it's chat GPT that helps you do it or whether it's a textbook, I don't think that mm. matters as much. And I, I don't believe the people who say that software jobs are going away. Maybe some junior jobs are going away. Maybe some jobs are going away. But as has been said by many other people, um, have you ever met a client who can specify things very clearly um, enough that you can develop software to those specs? No. Well, 
that that's really this idea that they're going to code in English and they'll get a perfect thing out is is just nonsense. Yeah, de definitely. All right, uh, Ruben, thank you so much. Um, before we, we finish, I just wanted to ask where is the best place to find you on the internet? Because you've done lots of things. You've got lots of fingers and lots of pies. What's the best way to find what you're up to? I mean, I have my YouTube channel, uh, which I am trying, trying to post to more often. There's Bamboo Weekly, of course. I have been tweeting, but I don't know what's going on with Twitter or X or- <laughs> You won't be the first God or last knows. person to say that. Oh my God. Like, like, so, I mean, I would say probably between YouTube and my two newsletters, the Better Developers newsletter, which I put out every um, Monday about Python stuff and Bamboo Weekly um, Panda stuff there. And if people have questions or just want to reach out, I'm very, very happy to hear from them. You can email me, you can get me on LinkedIn. I love, love, love hearing from people around the world and chatting with them and helping them as much as I can. It's really, uh, uh, I feel super, super lucky to have the job that I do. Um, and if I can help people to improve their jobs too, all the better. Wonderful. And um, thanks again so much, Ruben, for coming. My pleasure. This is a blast. Thank you.